Romans 2, 1 to 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judge. For those who passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them to yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. And on the day of wrath, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, and there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Happy Mother's Day. Today we honor all of the mothers and mother figures in our lives. Thank you for your loving example, tender care, and and wise guidance. I miss my mother today. This teacup reminds me of her. Much of what I understand to be right and wrong, I learned from her. My sense of morality came from her. For example, my mother, she had zero tolerance for lying. One day, when I was about, oh, four or five years of age, I was just bored. So I slipped into her bedroom where her purse was hanging and pulled out a breath mint. A few minutes later, my mother smelled the mint on my breath and asked, did you take a mint? No, I replied. I'm not sure what I was thinking. I had just earned a spanking. I remember sitting on my bed, whimpering, feeling sorry for myself and saying, a spanking because of a breath mint? Really? Today, I realized that I was learning a very important lesson about integrity. How did you receive your sense of right and wrong? I'm one of four boys, number three of four. My father, he built bridges for the Department of Highways during the day and ran our farm in the evenings. So my mother often had to care for us boys on her own. And we were not always the best behaved children on our street. My mother, she loved us. She cared for us. But sometimes she would joke that, God just had not been just with her in giving her only boys. Could God not have given her at least one or two good daughters? Did God consider her unworthy? One of her favorite sayings that my daughters will forever remember is, good girls, bad boys. Personally, I only redeemed myself when I gave her three granddaughters. So is God just? Our passage today, Romans chapter 2, 1 through 11, it speaks to integrity, to judgment and justice. Can we humans judge others? How should we respond when God doesn't appear to be judging us? If God does decide to judge, on what basis will he judge? 
In the previous passage, Romans 1, 18-32, Paul, he describes the human condition. He talks about people who try to rid themselves of God and turn away from his truth. In fact, they not only turn away from God, but encourage others to do the same. Now Paul turns to those who self-righteously condemn the people described in chapter 1. He turns to the self-righteous person who asks, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And answers, me. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? A shift occurs in Paul's language from chapter 1 to chapter 2. He shifts from the third person plural, they, to the second person singular, you. What's happening? Paul enters into this conversation with an imaginary person here. He engages a a common ancient literary device called diatribe. He enters into a dialogue with an imaginary opponent using questions and answers in order to, to engage his readers. Paul had preached the gospel for more than 20 years in Jewish synagogues, city halls, and market squares. He knew how people would respond to his message. He knew their questions. Here in Romans 2, he allows his hearers to overhear his conversation with this imaginary person who thinks he or she is morally superior, and they, his hearers, can self-identify. Like the Jews, many Greeks and Romans wrestled with the pervasive reality of, of human evil in their day. For example, Seneca, a contemporary of Paul, was a Roman moral philosopher who extolled moral virtue and condemned idolatry. In our passage, Paul is critiquing all moralists. That is, all people who seek to live an upright moral life, but also tend to regulate the moral life of others, and in doing so, easily cast judgment on others for their moral failings. The person addressed reads chapter 1 and says, Exactly, Paul. That's what's wrong with the world. Thanks for exposing the problem of evil in our society. Those people, they should be damned. Good thing I'm not like that. Whoever the imaginary person is, they don't see themselves included in the list of 21 vices at the end of chapter 1. Maybe they haven't gone down the road of idolatry and ethical living and relational breakdown, but they overlook the heart attitudes listed. Have they never spoken evil of anyone? Is there no hint of pride in their hearts? The people are addressed are so taken up with the faults of others that they don't see their own sins. Jesus tells an infamous parable in Luke chapter 18. Starting in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The scene would be comical if it were not so painfully common. There's a Pharisee in the heart of everyone who esteems their own morality. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus bursts the balloon of moral superiority, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We humans are not very self-aware. The other day I was considering a problem that I thought was quite complex. As I analyzed the situation, I quickly saw the shortcomings of the others involved in the situation. And then thankfully, I took the matter to prayer. And as I prayed, prayed, God revealed to me what I had contributed to the problem. I was not seeing the log in my own eye. I was humbled and had the opportunity to make some changes. We tend to have a double standard critical of everyone except ourselves. In fact, we feel good about ourselves by tracking the failures of others. We even find curious satisfaction in condemning others for the very things we excuse in ourselves. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul says, we're unable to judge our own hearts, much less the hearts of others. We need God's help and the help of others to see ourselves rightly. It's interesting to observe that when people are asked, are uh, you a good person? Most people will say, yes, better than most. Are you going to heaven? For sure. Why? Well, because I'm a good person. Have you ever told a lie? I guess so. Have you ever felt lust for another person? Oh, that's a tough one. Have you ever stolen anything? Well, kind of. We so easily delude ourselves. We judge ourselves by our good intentions and judge others by their actions. A double standard. We humans are given to self-deception. We judge people who do what we do. (laughs) Paul says the moralists, like the idolaters of chapter 1, are without excuse without defense before God. They are not condemned merely because they judge others, but because they practice the very same things, Paul says. The same things they condemn in others. The word practice in verse 1 and again in verse 2 is the same word that Paul uses in verse 32 of chapter 1 for those who practice things deserving of death. If we take another look at the 21 vices listed in chapter 1, we will inevitably find ourselves. We are all without excuse because we all, without exception, have fallen short of God's standard of morality, his holy character. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul breaks down the self-righteousness of the moralist. Why? Because he's cruel? No, because the moralists need to see their spiritual bankruptcy. They're just blind to themselves. In verse 3, the pronoun you, it appears two times to emphasize you. Do you really think you will escape God's judgment? Our society is plagued with this kind of hypocrisy. 
politicians condemning previous administrations and then doing the same thing. Preachers condemn other preachers and then do the same things. Younger generations condemn the former generations and then do the same things. The epitome of this plague of self-righteousness is what has become known as cancel culture. A person can be canceled, deemed morally unworthy based on a word, a gesture, a past sin, or whatever. And then the canceled person is shamed and everyone hastily condemns and dissociates themselves. If you simply Google who was canceled in 2020, a long list appears. So tell me, who is not worthy of being canceled? Paul makes two points regarding God's judgment in verses 1 through 3. First, verse 2, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Another way to translate this verse is, God's judgment is according to the truth. God's judgments are based on truth, not pretensions or appearances. He is able to remove the the mask of hypocrisy and discern the facts of the case. His judgments are based on the inner realities of the heart, not just outward appearances and actions. He sees it all. As I said earlier, my mother placed a high value on integrity. My youngest brother's name is Reg. On one occasion, she found a quarter in Reg's jean pocket. Where did you get that quarter, Reg? She inquired. Reg could not remember how the quarter had landed in his pocket. My mother decided to ground him in his bedroom until he confessed. When she returned after some time, Reg still could not remember. He remained grounded. Reg started to wonder how he would ever get out of his bedroom. So when she returned for the third time, he said, "Uh, Danny Dumas gave it to me. She immediately sent Reg down the street to the Dumas home to return the quarter. Reg knocked on the door. Danny Dumas opened the door, and Reg handed him a quarter. Have a quarter, Danny. My mother, she was a wonderful, strong woman. She had strong moral values, wanted her boys to be morally upright, but she was limited in her understanding of the facts. And to this day, Danny Dumas is thanking her for the quarter. God's judgment, on the other hand, is based on truth. In a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, written a few decades prior to the birth of Jesus, the Jewish author condemns the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But when he addresses the Jews, he writes this, But you, our God, are kind and true, patient and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. But we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. In other words, I'm a Jew, so I'm okay with God. The Jews often believed that their heritage put them in a privileged position before God. They were loved by God no matter what they did. They did not need to worry about their sin. However, like the people addressed in chapter 1, they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Paul says they, along with other moralists, will be judged for their stubborn hearts. In verses 4 and 5, Paul goes even deeper. Not only are people self-righteous and falsely secure, 
but they'd also despise God's kindness. Chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. By their attitude and action, the moralists show contempt for God's patience. The word forbearance, it refers to the restraint of wrath. Because God shows restraint and exercises patience, people continue to sin. They presume on the riches of his kindness. That is, they show contempt for or despise God's goodness. They scorn God's tolerance. They act as if God being kind to them, well, it's just their right. When I was in high school, my father had a gold-colored Grand Parisian, big car. Grade 12, he would often let me drive his car to school. One sunny spring afternoon during the lunch hour, I was in the mood to do something special. So I lined up the car where I would have the longest stretch of school parking lot in front of me. Three or four of my friends lifted the back end of the car. I revved the engine and they dropped the back end. It was the quintessential burnout, long, sustained, clouds of smoke billowing, people cheering. I finally had to break the car because I was about to go off the end of the parking lot. Only one problem. I had almost burned all the rubber off one tire. The car now sat on a slight angle. When I sat down for chemistry class after the lunch hour, my teacher said, nice experiment, Ray. No discipline. But after school, I had to go home and face my father. I decided the best thing to do would be to own my actions and confess what I had done. We walked over to the car together. My father looked at the tires, then looked at me, just shook his head. No discipline. This was incredible. What a great day. Did the fact that my father extended kindness to me mean that I had acted rightly? No. Did the fact that my father didn't ask me to pay for the tire mean that no cost was incurred? No. We often interpret God's goodness to mean that we are right with God. Oh, my my career is advancing. I enjoy financial stability. Family relationships are pretty good. Money for vacation time is in the savings account. My pension plan is in order. I must have God's approval. We easily assume we're good with God and have no need to change if life is good. Paul says the opposite may be true. God's kindness does not reveal indifference to sin. Rather, it is meant to melt our icy hearts. We can sometimes become so cavalier in our sinning because we think God will simply overlook what we have done. As the French skeptic Voltaire once said, God will forgive, that's his business. Certainly, a cavalier attitude towards sin is incompatible with a true relationship with Jesus. God's kindness is meant to soften our hearts and lead us to life change. God's kindness is meant to lead us to acknowledge our condition and do something about it. 
In similar fashion, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is exceedingly restrained. If you want a good biblical example, observe the patience of God in relation to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Observe God's patience during Israel's wilderness journey and the time of the judges. Observe God's patience during the time of the monarchy. Centuries of patience. Not a few minutes like us. No, centuries. The Jews often thought they would be shielded from God's judgment just because they were Jews, the chosen people of God. They were good with God. They only needed good intentions to obey God. They had no need to meet God's standard of righteousness. But the truth is, no one is right with God because of ethnicity, national identity, social class, church affiliation, family background, moral superiority, or wealth of knowledge. No one. In the case of everyone, every person, the greatest obstacle to life change is a hard, stubborn, calloused heart. Hypocritical moralists do not value God's gracious forbearance and do not see that they need to change. They ignore the intent of God's kindness to their own peril. Presumption on God's patience is a fatal mistake. So Paul drives home his argument with utter clarity in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. In these verses, Paul appears to repeat himself. What is he doing? Well, he employs a Greek literary structure called the chiasm. The structure looks something like this. Verse 6, God will judge everyone according to one's works. Verse 7, people who do, not, who do good attain eternal life. Verse 8, people who do evil will suffer wrath and fury. Again, people who do evil will suffer tribulation and distress. Verse 10, people who do good will receive glory, honor, and peace. Verse 11, God judges impartially. So you see the structure and the repetition. In this chiasm, the main point comes at the beginning and at the end. 
The principle is stated in verses 6 and 11. God will judge everyone according to one's works. God judges impartially. Jesus and Paul also quote this statement in verse 6. Each person will receive according to how they have lived. Before God, we are on a level playing field. God judges each person without favoritism. As I said earlier, I'm the third of four sons. If my older brothers were doing something wrong, they would usually involve me in some way. Then when we were caught, we would all be disciplined at the same time. The discipline was meted out according to age. Always my oldest brother first, then my second brother, and then me. So if my older brothers had been disciplined and they were crying, I knew it was going to be really bad for me. That waiting period was torturous. And for some reason, my younger brother, Reg, always escaped the discipline. Poor me. Why was my younger brother not accountable? Were my parents playing favorites? No, actually, one of their virtues was impartiality, but it felt as if they were being partial, unfair. After all, why should the discipline end with poor me? As we saw earlier in verse 2, God judges according to the truth. He judges rightly. To show favoritism is to look only on the face of things or to see only the masks that people wear. God sees the person, not the mask. He sees the character, not the role played. He sees the heart, not only the appearance. This is the main point of these verses. And then with two carefully constructed statements, Paul explains the principle of verses 6 and 11. He talks about what we seek, what we do, and what we will receive. The basis for what we receive, our final destiny, is a combination of what we seek, our ultimate goal in life, and what we do, our acts of loving service. He is talking about our basic orientation in life. God, who does not show favoritism, judges based on what we actually seek and do. What does a person on the path of life with God look like in verses 7 and 10? They persist in doing good by seeking for God's glory, God's character on display, God's honor, God's name made famous, and God's immortality, the incomparable joy of his presence. Because they seek God, they will receive eternal life which is to know God and his son, Jesus Christ. They will receive glory, that is, transformation into Jesus' likeness. They will receive honor, God's approval, and peace. That is, relationship with God and others, life as it should be. So those who seek God find him. This is the gift of grace for those who repent and turn to God. What does a person on the path of death look like? Well, it's in verses 8 and 9. They're described as self-seeking. The Greek philosopher Aristotle uses this word self-seeking for politicians who seek office for private gain rather than for public good. It's used for people who idolize themselves and seek to advance themselves. They may be doing what their culture applauds, working extra hours, seeking professional advancement, securing their future, but their core motivation is selfish ambition. Paul says that they reject the truth and follow evil like those listed in chapter 1. 
Why would he say that? Because they do not seek God. They do not love God. They do not obey God. They do not love their neighbor. Rather, they obey self-seeking desires. Because they're unwilling to be instructed by God and submit to his lordship, they will receive wrath and fury. That is damnation to hell. After all, why should someone who has no desire for God receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ, when it's not what they want? Did you notice in verses 6 through 11 that Paul refers to each one, every human being, everyone? We are all held accountable individually, all of us. We're not judged by external appearance, social status, or circumstances. Before God, the playing field is level. We are judged according to the truth. Paul's argument is designed to puncture any assumption of moral superiority. But you might ask, does Paul not contradict himself here? Does he not go against the entire argument of chapters 1 through 3, namely that we're all trapped in our own sin and cannot be saved by our good works? Certainly for Paul, no person can be saved by good works because we are all locked in sin and need to be rescued. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Salvation, it depends exclusively on being made righteous before God the Father through faith in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. At the same time, the person who is justified by faith in Jesus will do good works. True faith gives evidence of its authenticity through action. Good intentions and verbal confessions are not enough. Faith always works itself out through love, as Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6. What prepares us to avert God's wrath on the day of judgment? Well, a soft and repentant heart. We see evidence of this heart when we trust Jesus to be our Savior accept his righteousness as a gift and receive the gift of forgiveness of sin. We see evidence of this heart when our hearts are soft and we continue to ask the Holy Spirit for transformation into the likeness of Jesus. This heart reveals itself in a heart that loves God above all else and reaches out in love to one's neighbor. Followers of Jesus do good not to earn their salvation, but as marks of their hope in God. And this work in our hearts, it depends on the grace of God, the work of the Spirit in our lives from beginning to end. Our task is to yield our hearts to that good, gracious work of God. Let's pray. Father, we just humble ourselves before you and we acknowledge how good you have been to us, how gracious, how kind. And we ask, Lord, that your work of transformation in our hearts would change. Lord, if there's any blindness, any hardness, may it be removed. May we yield ourselves totally to you and allow you to do the work that you would desire to do in our lives. Lord, transform us and use us for your glory, Lord. May our love for you grow and our love for those 
around us. May we never find ourselves uh, judging ourselves to be morally superior to others, better than others. Lord, for those who have never yielded their hearts to you, may they in this moment just surrender their hearts to you and acknowledge their need for you, Jesus, as their Savior. May they acknowledge that they can't earn their salvation, that you came and died in their place, took their sin upon yourself so that they might be made righteous before God, your Father. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are surrendering their lives to you today that you would fill them with your Spirit and that they would be empowered, Lord, to follow you. God, on this Mother's Day, we thank you for your just unbelievable goodness to us. Uh, Mothers who have loved us, cared for us, who have provided guidance along the way. We thank you for their example, and we pray, Lord, your rich blessing on them. And for those among us who maybe struggle because Mother's Day is a day of difficult memories, we pray for healing in their hearts and minds as well. We thank you, God, that you are faithful, that you are present. No matter where we find ourselves, Lord, you are present and willing to speak to us, to lead us, to lead us forward. I thank you, Lord, that you are the God of hope. And so I pray, Lord, may you, the God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you. And may we abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May that be true, Lord. That prayer be true for each mother, each mother figure listening today. I pray these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget to tell your mother that you love her. Here's some questions for reflection.